Welcome to the Venari podcast. Uh, my name is Ben Brickle. Today I'm joined by Jose Gomez, who's a gene therapy commercialization expert. Um, we're going to talk about the future of gene therapy and some of the challenges associated uh, with access and reimbursement in particular. So Jose, uh, great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Ben. Great chatting with you today. Yeah, did you want to give a quick introduction from your side? Sure. Um, uh, my name is Jose Gomez. I've been uh, in the biotech and pharma industry for 28 years. The last 12 years, uh, I've been focused on rare diseases. And in fact, the last six years, uh, focused uh, on gene therapy, both in vivo and ex vivo approaches. Yeah, cool. Good. So what, how did you first get into working with gene therapies and, and what was it that attracted you to the science? Great question. I actually began seriously thinking about gene therapies from a commercial perspective as early as 2011, uh, while I was working at Shire HGT, Human Genetic Therapies. That was the former uh, genetic rare diseases business unit at Shire, uh, which is of course now Takeda. Uh, however, I formally began working uh, in the gene uh, therapy space in 2017 when I joined Avexis now Novartis Gene Therapies. At Avexis, I had the opportunity to work on Solgensma, a transformative AAV-based uh, one-time gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy. I led the development of the global access and value strategy for Solgensma, among other things. Uh, in fact, I actually remained out of access uh, post the Novartis acquisition until 2020 when I joined uh, AvroBio. AvroBio is a lentiviral-based clinical stage uh, gene therapy company that is focused on developing uh, therapies for uh, lysosomal storage disorders. And I joined AvroBio as Senior Vice President of Access and Value, and also was the global commercial leader for the Pompeii and Cystinosis gene therapy programs. You sort of recently stepped away from AvroBio. What's next for you, Jose? I am currently assessing opportunities to determine the right next step uh, for me professionally. Where can I contribute the most, uh, given my skill set, uh, my experience, et cetera, but also where the science uh, can have the most impact on patients? That to me is, is the guiding post, right? Uh, so I have a, you know, a huge passion to bring to markets globally therapies that address the, the root cause of the disease. And that could be whether, you know, whether it's gene therapy, gene editing, or other novel therapeutic approaches. Uh, instead of just treating the symptoms, right? Historically, what you see in the market are therapies that just treat patients chronically for life. And I see that as the greatest opportunities to transform healthcare globally. So moving away from, you know, what I call activity-based healthcare, treating patients chronically sick for life to therapies that have the potential to halt, reverse, or even potentially cure certain genetic diseases. And this is the path where, where, where I, I see my career continuing. Cool, great, thank you. And I know your background uh, is obviously coming from some of the larger uh, pharmaceutical companies and then moving into a lot of the gene therapies coming from the earlier stage biotech companies. Um, seen a lot of people making a transition from big pharma into um, uh, smaller biotech. Um, how did you find that transition? And then also quite interestingly, coming into a company like Avexis and then being acquired by Novartis, so kind of going from big pharma to biotech and then back into a big pharma again. How do you find these transitions? Frankly, I found the transition to be quite easy. Uh, I think in general, large organizations are far better resourced, of course, and the infrastructure is already available, right? It's, it's sitting there for optimization. However, when it comes to uh, kind of the, the aspects of larger pharma, 
um, slower decision making and, and the roles tend to be a bit more structured, right? In some cases, I would argue even a bit siloed. Um, in comparison, uh, small biotech is, is, is in general highly unstructured. Uh, that can be a, a plus or a negative. Uh, but by default, you end up doing things beyond kind of the traditional scope of your job description, right? So, which for some individuals, that will be desirable. And in some, in some cases, it's not uh, appealing. For me, it was extremely appealing. Uh, there's obviously more, uh, you know, faster decision making. Um, the, big, uh, the biggest downside, in my opinion, of small biotech is, of course, that resources are limited. And, and ensuring that you have adequate funding particularly in a pre-commercial biotech uh, is always top of mind. Uh, this is becoming very evident these days. Uh, as you can see overall, biotech uh, valuations have dropped considerably. So raising capital uh, via equity, et cetera, is highly diluted, ma making it more expensive. So, you know, smaller organizations, you have to worry about some things that in a larger organization, you don't have to really worry about. Um, I know you have the advantage of having worked in both the US and Europe. And um, yeah, we've seen some gene therapy manufacturers opt out of Europe recently. The question is, is the reimbursement that much easier in the US or rather that much harder in Europe? How, how do you see that? So I'll give you the short answer first. Um, and the short answer is that in general, the healthcare systems in Europe and, and for that matter, anywhere outside of the US generally do tend to be more centralized, of course, and with very well-established resources, right? Uh, and that in, in general leads to um, the perception, which I believe is accurate, that in the US, it's perhaps easier to gain reimbursement. Um, for example, uh, the use of uh, health technology assessments, uh, HTA for short, is very prevalent, as you know, outside of the US, right? Um, and the influence that these HTAs have in Europe uh, is um, very significant in ultimately determining the access and the reimbursement of new products. In the US, the implementation of HTA has been gaining some traction over the past few years. However, historically, Europe has been well ahead of the US in the widespread uh, implementation and use of health technology assessments. So I think that's a very significant factor. Mm. Now, all of this to say, that Europe is not a lost cause for gene therapy. And I wanna make that very clear. There are very good examples out there where you can see gene therapists that have been very successful in achieving reimbursement and access in Europe and beyond, for instance, uh, Luxterna and Solgensma. However, at the end of the day, the burden of proof on, on establishing the incremental value of these new therapies lies on the manufacturers. Uh, so it is really, really critical for manufacturers to begin value evidence planning uh, in the very early stage of clinical development. So for example, in gene therapy, as early as phase one, two, uh, so that you ensure that adequate evidence is available at uh, product launch to substantiate the value of your new product. Uh, obviously, undoubtedly, the patient responses you're seeing, some of these gene therapies coming through is, is phenomenal. So hopefully... Um, you know, we, we can uh, get past these challenges. But geography aside, I mean, there, there are a whole host of other challenges that um, you know, gene therapy manufacturers are, are facing. You know, how, how do we sort of overcome some of those and, and you know, how do you see the future of gene therapy? Let's start with the science, right? So there has been some setbacks in the gene therapy space over the past few years. We've seen some clinical holds, et cetera, both uh, for AAV as, as well as for Lenti uh, ex vivo approaches. Uh, so in some cases, it's an emerging safety or toxicity signal. 
in other cases, we, we have seen some waning of durability of effect. And in other cases, perhaps some safety dosing considerations. Um, what we're seeing in the market is several AAD gene therapy companies out there are pivoting to next uh, generation AAV capsids. So, and in fact, even non-viral vectors to achieve a, a more targeted efficacy, increased tissue uh, tropism, and improve the long-term durability of effect while also reducing toxicity. Uh, ultimately, I do believe that the science, while it's still evolving and will continue to evolve, no doubt, will ultimately succeed in determining the, what is the right therapeutic approach for a given genetic disease. Um, I think ultimately the science will prevail and we will see uh, gene therapy uh, coming uh, very strongly. I also believe from a, let's say from a healthcare system perspective uh, and talking, think, starting to think more about reimbursement, et cetera, the healthcare systems around the world will eventually evolve and accommodate for uh, novel reimbursement pathways to make these truly transformative therapies accessible to patients. So particularly as more of these therapies make it to market, there's gonna be a, a point in time where payers, HTAs and other key stakeholders will um, will we'll adapt, right, and, and make these uh, new therapies available uh, faster, more broadly, et cetera. But that will require very strong partnerships and adjustments uh, by all the key stakeholders. So when I say that, I mean, you know, starting with payers and HTAs, certainly manufacturers, regulators, and uh, other policymakers. Yeah, certainly agree. It's, uh, it's uh, going to be a combined approach of those things. So I look forward to seeing that play out. Jose, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk.